Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSightNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Mark Milkey about his book, The Victim Cult, How the Culture of Blame Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilization, which was an Amazon bestseller. Just to give you a bit of background on Mark, he is a public policy analyst, a keynote speaker, an author, and a columnist with six books and dozens of studies published across Canada and internationally over the last two decades. His work has been published by think tanks in Canada and internationally, including the Fraser Institute, the Montreal Economic Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, and the Brussels-based Centre for European Studies. In 2019, he was the lead architect of the United Conservative Party election platform and a principal policy advisor to UCP leader Jason Kenney. He was most recently the executive director of research for the Canadian Energy Centre and is currently working with the Blue Ribbon Board of Directors to launch a new think tank in later 2022 that will focus on issues related to reason, democracy and civilization. His commentary has been published in the Globe and Mail, the National Post, and Maclean's Magazine. So I think many of you will be interested in the upcoming think tank once you hear a bit about Mark Milkey's book, The Victim Cult. We had a long conversation about the way that our society is being transformed by the weaponization of victimhood, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So just before I get into the, the details of your book here, and there's a lot that I want to ask you, I thought I'd, I'd just ask you to give give the listeners a bit of an idea of, of who you are, since there's obviously a story behind the story of why you wrote the book. So just give, give people a bit of a background on your career, what you've been up to, and, and what brought you to write this book. Let's start with the book first. I've done a lot of policy on First Nations in Canada over the years. So that in combination with having grown up in Kelowna, British Columbia, near probably one of the most successful First Nations in the country, the West Bank First Nation, led me to write The Victim Cult. In short, I noticed that some First Nations leaders who dwell on the past to the exclusion of of the present or the future often set up their First Nation for failure, uh, among other reasons why uh, First First Nations uh, may not do, do so well. So that's kind of where the inspiration for it started. Now, personally, I've been involved in public policy and activism for almost 25 years. I used to work for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation starting in the late 1990s, then for various think tanks across the country. I've written six books, uh, most famously maybe Tax Me, I'm Canadian, so a tax, tax issue kind of book. But this book really is probably, as I mentioned, comes from looking at why particular cultures succeed or fail, because I think there's, there's more to success in life. That that isn't explained just by material causes. So, you know, man does not live by bread alone, that sort of thing. So why is it uh, that certain cultures and societies succeed or fail? And I've noticed again and again in research for the book, and this was basically a seven, eight year effort in terms of writing the victim cult, that everybody knows someone who, who thinks like a victim in their personal life. Now, they may have been uh, the victim of a tragedy uh, or someone else's evil intent, or they may not have been. In one sense, for the purposes of this book, it doesn't matter. My question in the book is, okay, what happens, though, if you get stuck there, especially as a society? So the victim cult really is about looking at why societies fail or succeed, drawing on the work of economists Thomas Sowell and others, if your listeners are familiar with that, you know, economists from the United States.
Where I wanted to start with, so the title of your book uh, is The Victim Cult, but it's the subtitle that's the kicker, How the Culture of Blame Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilizations. The I think the you kind of buried the lead there because, because the boldest claim would be wreck civilization. So kind of ease our readers into it. How, how would you make the case that sort of the sense of victimhood, either in groups or in individuals, can not only wreck families, can wreck you know individual subcultures, but also civilizations at large? The subtitle actually comes from the historical work that's in the victim cult on Germany, on Rwanda, on the Palestinians under Yasser Arafat. Those are the three longest chapters in the victim cult. And let's start with Germany. I mean, look, my ethnic background is German, but frankly, that matters not a whit. I've always thought of myself as English Canadian. And that matters because bad ideas or good ideas can either hold you back or propel you forward. So the nod to civilizations. How do victim cults wreck civilizations? Well, Germany is a great example. So Germany was actually victimized in history. So if you go to the late eight, sorry, late 18th century, the late 1700s, you will find that Germany, parts of Germany were occupied by France. And then once the Germans threw off France, threw France out of German territories in the early 1800s, they began to search around for their identity. What does it mean to be German? They looked back 600 years. They asked a question, which you know became a cliche a couple of years ago in American politics, you know, how do we be great again? And uh, literally, this was the question that Germans asked themselves in the early 19th century, as they're scrambling to find out who they are again, once the French have been uh, ejected from the country. And what they get into is this notion of cultural purity. What does it mean to be a pure German? And the answer back then was you had to be Protestant, you had to be white, you couldn't be Jewish, you couldn't be British, by the way, you couldn't be a liberal in the classical liberal sense, the John Stuart Mill sense, you couldn't be an Enlightenment thinker. German philosophy in in the previous century gave a nod to the Enlightenment, as did much much of Europe. But by the 19th century, German thinkers are increasingly dwelling on, I'd say, a more protectionist more isolationist sort of form of, of identity. And so they, they begin to just get into this notion that we, we must be culturally pure and the non-Indigenous, and this is the kind of language that was used, must be either expelled from German territories or limited in their influence in Germany. Now, to cut to the chase, what happens is this later combines with a notion of race purity late in the 19th century. And then, of course, Adolf Hitler in 1933 and the Nazis take this to a destructive end. And, and what did what happened, in essence, is that German civilization, the land that was known for Bach and Beethoven, becomes the, the land, the country known for Dachau and Bergen-Belsen concentration camps and extermination camps. So that's how the Germans destroyed their own civilization. And on, on the Canadian edition of the victim cult, I have a picture, and the American edition, I have a picture of St. Paul's Cathedral on the cover. And of course, what, what did the Germans do during World War II? They're on the attack against English civilization. And St. Paul's Cathedral, bombed during the Blitz and at other points during World War II, is a perfect symbol of civilization. Um, a civilization, a, a church that had been around for centuries and reconstructed in the 1700s by Christopher Wren, famous architect. Well, in World War II, it's attacked and almost goes down, as does English civilization. Canada, United States, Great Britain. So in the subtitle to the victim cult, how victim cults uh, wreck civilizations, is drawn from that image, this notion that if it goes viral in a country, the victim cult really can destroy an entire civilization. It destroyed Germany's civilization. And and frankly, it, it had to be destroyed as of 1945. The Nazis couldn't win, but the consequence of that of World War II, of course, almost destroyed English civilization as well.
Now, what's really interesting about, about the German example, because people, when they hear the example of Germany these days, are, are going to be tempted to, to, to roll their eyes and laugh it off because of Godwin's law, and people are just tired of hearing about the Nazis. <coughs> Excuse me. But what's what's really interesting about, about the Nazi example is when you're talking about victimhood, you're specifically talking about the weaponization of victimhood, the use of victimhood, often by people who didn't necessarily uh, believe that they themselves were victims, but they were using not only victimhood, but this sense of victimhood almost to extort or, or force other people into doing other things, to extort the government, you name it. Just to, I remember in Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe, when he was referring to this day in Australia where the country is expected to mourn their crimes against the Aboriginal people, which, which were many and brutal, he pointed out that there's nothing wrong with admitting that your nation is guilty of crimes. Where we've gone wrong is that we started to say that Western civilization is incapable of good. And there's a huge, huge distinction between those two things. So how do you think that victimhood is being weaponized in the current moment? Just to, because your book, it's kind of interesting. You would have, when I first saw the, the cover of your your book, and I made a mistake. I thought that was the Capitol building, not St. Paul's. <laughs> so I, I got that wrong. You know, I would have been tempted to, to, to think that you wrote this in, in, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter riots of last year, but in fact, it was written a couple of years ago. So how would you take the concepts laid out in your book and apply them to our current political moment? They're applicable in any age, in any society, really. And yeah, as I mentioned, the, the Canadian edition released two years ago, now the American edition released just last month, have St. Paul's Cathedral on the cover. But this notion of weaponizing the past against the present is a real danger because you may draw the wrong cause and effect link. In the American edition, I talk about Black Lives Matter. In the Canadian edition, I talk about First Nations in Canada that do just that, or some do. My own view is that majority of First Nations people in Canada don't necessarily subscribe to the victimization cult, nor do a majority of Black Americans from the polls anyway. And But there is this danger that an overused term elites, leaders certainly of various communities, and academics and others, the self-referencing classes, as I call them, often are dwelling on the past as, as a weapon against the present. And they, they draw a wrong cause and effect link. Let me use a Canadian example. So the notion, if you look at the bare statistics, you know, from Statistics Canada, from the census, you'll see that the average First Nations person in Canada, the average Indigenous person, makes less than the average non-First Nations or non-Indigenous Canadian. So that's pretty well known. But the problem is, if you stop there, just as if you stop there with, say, Black Americans versus White Americans versus Asian American incomes, is that you'll draw the wrong conclusion, that perhaps that disparity in outcomes and in incomes is because of discrimination or something else. Well, it's really the something else. So in, in the case of First Nations in Canada, very simply, if you're a young adult between the age of 25 and 34, an Indigenous Canadian who's got a bachelor's degree, you work full time, full year, guess what? Your income is $100 higher than the, the young adult who is not Indigenous, who has the same makeup, bachelor's degree, works full time, works full year. That's an apple to apple comparison. Thomas Sowell does the same thing for, say, Black Americans versus other Americans in an attempt to tease out this question, show me the discrimination or the effect of discrimination upon incomes, because it's not there when you do the honest statistics and you do apple-to-apple -apple comparisons. Now, the problem is many people, though, don't do what I just did and look at apple-to-apple -apple comparisons. They just look at averages. And there are reasons why, on average, First Nations Canadians earn less on average, You know, and a big part of it is a greater proportion live, live in rural areas. 
a good chunk of First Nations Canadians still live on reserves, which are often in the middle of nowhere. That all depresses incomes because the career opportunities aren't there. Or if you don't account for the education differences between, say, Indigenous Canadians and others on average. So all those things matter. And what happens, though, is you, you, you see people that simplistically weaponize the past and say, I'm the result of what happened 50 years ago or 150 years ago. And I would say, you know, that's, you know, all of this is an art, not a science, you know, for the, you know, in part, in terms of how do you account for the past? If you step on my toe or you drop something on my toe and it breaks and, you know, I've got a cast on it today, I can draw that, that clear link that Jonathan dropped uh, something heavy on my toe, it broke, and that's why I have a cast on my toe today. But can you really draw the link between, say, 200 years ago in slavery and incomes among Black Americans in the U.S. today? You know, or e even better, Bill Clinton blamed part of 9-11 on the Crusades a, a thousand years before. That's really pushing it. I mean, I do, I do in the book try and, you know, as you, as you probably know if you've read it, I, I do try and say, look, there are cases where you want compensation for past actions, past wrongs. But you've got to be very careful about, careful about weaponizing the past against the present. You're going to draw wrong cause and effect links. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that when we get into the issue of residential schools, we're no longer talking so much about history as we are about living memory. I worked with a bunch of, of First Nations guys when I was growing up in the Fraser Valley, and, and a lot of them went through residential schools themselves. And the intergenerational trauma there was not a victim thing, and a lot of those guys didn't consider themselves victims, but their entire lives, their family structures, all of these things had very obviously been profoundly affected by this experience. And many of them were still engaging in behaviors as a way of self-medicating for the various things that they went through. And so the, the, for these guys, it wasn't, you know, you know, conquest 150 or 200 years ago, right? This isn't Samuel de Champlain or Sir Johnny MacDonald. This is stuff that happened, you know, in the 80s or the late 70s. Um, and I always wonder, how, how do we respond to a historical injustice when the survivors are still alive to recognize that a hor horrifying crime was perpetrated? This was, you know, government-sanctioned and government-perpetrated family breakup. And I've always believed that the greatest privilege you can have is, is growing up with two parents who sort of, you know, teach you how to live properly, which many of many of these people were denied. So how do we square that circle? How do we how do we not how do we not give them a victim mentality while recognizing their victimhood? Because one of them is profoundly uh, counterproductive. The other is necessary to right the wrongs of the recent past. There's a lot there. I mean, to unpack it, what I try and do in the victim cult, and I, I do write on the First Nations experience, although not, though not much in the residential schools, and there's a reason for that, which has to do with, again, trying to draw proper cause and effect links. And I don't think the, the, the 2015 commission and since the other ones necessarily gave the fullest view in all of this. So what I try and do is tease out again, look, I think about two thirds of, of First Nations children in the education system didn't go to residential schools. So the question is, what do you do then if someone says, what, what do you do with modern day effects? What's the cause of some modern day effects? So I look at reserves specifically. And again, this is where, you know, 25 years of looking at First Nations policy and reserves in some cases matters. You look at a modern reserve. What's the problem today on a reserve? Well, as a trace in the victim cult, you will see that you'll, you'll find that women, for example, are still not treated uh, equally to men on reserves uh, until very recently in terms of law and policy, in terms of property rights. 
you'll see a lack of property rights for everyone on reserve, which I think uh, leads to, you know, I think this is empirically obvious that you can't create wealth without property rights anywhere. A collectivist model simply doesn't work. There's a potential for corruption. There's top-down transfer of money from councils to people and from Ottawa, frankly, from the federal government to reserves. So uh, the entire system of reserves, how they're structured, leads to poverty and leads to social problems, which I would I would argue is the more you know, accurate cause and effect link as opposed to even residential schools. Now, what I don't want to do and what I don't do in the Bitcoin cult is dismiss, though, individual experiences. And here, though, the best example is and a clear example is, again, because some First Nations people went to residential schools, some did not. Let me use a clear example from another cohort, Japanese Canadians. So in uh, World War II, as most people know, uh, the federal government copying the American example put Japanese Canadians, uh, a good good proportion of Japanese Canadians in internment camps for the duration of the war and took took their property. And in some cases, they never got it back. There was some compensation in the 1950s and, and some more in the 1980s. It was never complete. It should have been. This is a much clearer cause and effect link. If, if we're talking about 1950 or 1946, do you as a Japanese Canadian have every right to say, listen, you have hampered me by taking my property and taking years of my life. Do you deserve compensation? Absolutely. And the same thing with Black Americans and slavery. Quakers in the late 1700s, when they released their slaves, also compensated them. So there's a clear cause and effect link. I or my cohort did this to yours. We're going to compensate you for what happened yesterday over the last 10 years, the last 20 years. Individual experiences sometimes in a system are a little more difficult to tease out in terms of is the reason you are the way you are today, what happened 30 years ago or 50 years ago. Nonetheless, I mean, I, again, this is where it's more of an art than a science, but I wouldn't downplay actual victimization in any case among any of these groups. Again, the big question, though, is, um, and this comes from the, the person who wrote the foreword for my book, Ellis Ross himself, First Nations elected counselor at one point in his career, and whose parents went to residential schools. As Ellis writes in The Victim Cult, he says, look, you can look back and see wrongs in history, including among you know, his, you know, his First Nation. But when, when he came to council, he had a decision to make, and I'm paraphrasing here, which was, we can either blame the past, we can blame the, the bureaucracy in Ottawa, or we can decide we're going to fix stuff here on the ground. So what he did is he fixed stuff on the ground along with his fellow councillors. And that included starting to think more entrepreneurially, uh, thinking about education, thinking about doing deals with liquefied natural gas companies on the coast of British Columbia, which has now made his First Nation, the highs of First Nation, incredibly prosperous. So this is an example of the First Nations leader who said, look, history is real. His own parents went to residential schools, although I, I recall from conversations with him, he had a more nuanced view of, of that experience than, than is often you know, given out by many people. Nonetheless, he said one has to look forward. Otherwise, he could he could have collapsed into bitterness and uh, and retribution. And that was not the path he wanted to take. So that's a long answer again to a short question. But that's that's where Ellis Ross, you know, particularly successful First Nations leader has gone. What is your view of all the statue smashing that has taken place over the last year? Because again, this is where where the weaponization of victimhood has taken us to a place where when when John A. McDonald, who did some bad things, but was also 
an incredible man by any historical standard, right? When his statue gets toppled or then removed, you know, I grew up in, in the Fraser Valley. Do you, you know, I'm sure you went there too. Do you remember the the displays in the Royal Canadian Museum in Victoria? I do. And I, I lived in Victoria for a bit. And so, yeah, I'm well familiar with what used to be there. I think it's now being taken out. It, it, without even a replacement. So just for the listeners who, who aren't aren't aware of this inside baseball between two BC guys, there's this beautiful display of, of, of showing, you know, colonial British Columbia. There's George Vancouver's ship. I've, I, I don't know how many times I've been there, but I remember the first time I was there as a kid. Like these are truly phenomenal displays. They've rebuilt an entire village and there's there's plenty of indigenous displays as well. So it, it's not like, you know, these needed to be replaced. And now they're ripping the whole thing out wholesale as a process of what they're calling decolonization but it appears to me that decolonization apparently means ignoring a whole section of history which is bewildering to me like if they wanted to change the labels on some of these things you know I, I might disagree but whatever but ripping these things out just seems like vandalism to me well i think there are a couple of things going on one some people are are looking at the past and you know in the way that marxists used to look at the future in the 20th century they take a utopian approach. I disagreed with 20th century Marxists. They were utterly wrong on, on the economy and how it works. Nevertheless, you can argue at least they were looking to the future, trying to create a utopia in the future. You've got people today, identity politics types and the rest, taking down statues who look to the past and think it should have been perfect. They're applying a utopia to the past. Well, why would you expect anybody in the past to act perfectly or act according to our norms today? We're not perfect. And 100 years from now, there will, pe- will be people that look back to 2021 and, and ask how Mark and Jonathan could have believed certain things. So that's problem number one, this utopian approach to the past. Number two is a lack of nuance and a lack of modesty. So First Nations in British Columbia, I mean, talking about the colonial experience, First Nations in British Columbia were often the last to abolish slavery. The British Empire abolished slavery officially in 1833, but it was pretty much gone from Canada in 1820. Some early colonial, you know, pre-Confederation governors in Canada tried to abolish slavery quite early and were successful at doing so. In the case of British Columbia, uh, Governor Douglas, starting around the late 1840s, tried to abolish slavery, met some resistance in First Nations communities in BC. So if we're gonna you know, rewrite history, and that's fine, you know, you know, I think we should be adding to the historical record and clarifying it, not subtracting from it. And that includes the colonial experience, the British imperialists, and also the indigenous experience, but also being frank about the, the sins and virtues of both. As I write in the victim cult, not only about the British, say in British Columbia, but in India, you can't just you know, look at the faults. You have to look at the British and what they brought to British Columbian attempts to abolish slavery over the objections of some First Nations and the inability of the British to do so because they were a small presence in a largely indigenous province, say in 1850. I think indigenous, the indigenous population was something like 35,000 and you know, the Brits or, and other, other non-indigenous folk were about 10,000. So I think you have to bring in everybody's ancestors. I mean, one of the chapters that I wrote in The Victim Cult, I was going to entitle Everyone's Ancestors or Bastards. I chose a more nuanced title. But the point of it and that point of that chapter in The Victim Cult is to say, um, I think most of us would prefer to break bread with uh, everyone else around today, uh, alive today, than any of our ancestors, because you go back more than two or three generations And we wouldn't necessarily like how they treated each other. And it doesn't matter whether you're indigenous or British or whatever. But I I do think that's part of the problem, in addition to a utopian approach to the past. We we romanticize one's own culture sometimes. And then once we get into a guilt mode, which is happening in Western civilization right now, we romanticize indigenous past, the indigenous past, as if it was kind of 
completely in harmony with nature. And if no indigenous, you know, first nation or tribe or whatever you'd like to call it, ever had an issue with another one. So that's part of the problem as well. There's there's a romanticization again. It's the reverse of the 1950s where you could watch a John Wayne movie and ridiculously the whites were always the good guys and the quote unquote Indians were, you know, either, you know, subjective, sorry, subject and also inferior. Well, the reverse has happened now. And, you know, again, that's not history. It's cartoonish history, depending on who's making the movie or who's writing the book. All our ancestors are bastards. It leads me perfectly into in, into the, the next thing I, I wanted to to run by you, just because where do you where do you think that this will stop? Because if they're tearing out, uh, you know, George Vancouver's ship and a bunch of shops because of 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 of, of misdeeds against whoever, and I think it's important to emphasize here that the displays that they're ripping out represent a time, you know, when when the British British Empire was getting rid of slavery, as you point out. So what happens when they discover that the indigenous tribes being celebrated, assume like presumably in, in replacement exhibitions, also had slaves? including the Salish people, including the Stolo people. If you go to, if, if you look at almost every major indigenous group in the area represented by the, the Royal BC Museum, they all, they all held slaves. And I learned that in school when I was reading oral histories, you know, written by people of the Stolo nation, because I don't know what this, this discussion, there's a lot of discussion about how we, we don't get taught real history. Like that's nonsense as far as I'm concerned, because I, I went through 13 years of school in BC and we were taught all this stuff almost almost right from the get-go right down to you know doing field trips to indigenous sites and, and reading their accounts so how far does canceling go backwards then is it when we sort of rediscover the fact that they held slaves too we get to cancel them now again how far back does this go well i don't think you want to cancel anyone what you want to do is you want to make sure history is accurate empirically accurate and there's a danger these days of romanticization or adding a creation narrative Right. So that's the that's the problem. I think where this stops is when people just start telling the truth again and start looking at it as individuals as individuals. One of the reasons I try in the victim cult to redirect people from romanticized history is because what I'm trying to do is say, look, all of our ancestors, as I mentioned a moment ago, had their faults, as do we today. I take the Alexander Solzhenitsyn approach in the introductory in the introduction to the victim cult. And point out uh, his famous quote in the Gulag Archipelago was, and I'm paraphrasing from memory here, but it's to the effect of, you know, when, when he was in a Soviet Gulag, a Soviet Union Gulag during World War II for making a joke about Stalin, and he observed how, how you know, his fellow inmates behaved. There was this notion, uh, this notion in society at large, that to get to a better society, we just have to eliminate certain people. I mean, either you you know cancel them from the discussion in our age or in his age, more brutally, you'd murder them. The state would murder them or remove them from civilization and put them in these camps if they didn't murder them. And the evil person is over there. And if only we get rid of that person, all will be well. And Solzhenitsyn rightly thought this was really un- misunderstanding human beings in each one of us. He said the line through good and evil is not between each one of us, but runs through every human heart. And so one has to be careful, and that's the call to modesty in the victim cult, is that every one of us has the tendency towards evil, or Lord Acton's phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. How this stops is when people start looking at each other as individuals again, stop romanticizing perhaps their own history. Again, in the 1950s, it might have been you know, the, the frontier mentality in the United States, that the whites were always the good guys and the quote-unquote Indians were the bad guys. Uh, these days, it's reversed. 
I mean, it really has. And, you know, in Hollywood films, you'll see that all over the place. And you'll certainly see this in debates in Canada this, these days. It stops when you romanticize your own history, regardless of what your history is. And I'm, I'm, in one sense, a classic liberal. I really do think it's a mistake to focus on skin color, ethnicity, um, you know, one's nationality. What matters to me are good ideas and bad ideas and good policy and bad policy, because none of us can change our skin color. If we were doing this in video, I, I, you know, I draw attention to my skin right now and say, you know, I can't change this. I'd pinch it and say, I can't change this. And you can't change your skin color or where you grew up or who you are. What you can do is change how you think. What you can do is, is copy good ideas and dismiss bad ideas. And that's been the success, I would argue, of you know, civilizations over time, not just Western civilization. We stole uh, Arab numbering from the Arabs and they stole it from, you know, India, in my understanding. So it's a good thing we stole those, those numbers because in Western civilization, if we tried to make Roman numerals work, we wouldn't have gotten very far, you know, in mathematics or algebra or, you know, actuarial tables for insurance. So copying other cultures is actually a good thing, copying good ideas. So I think that's where the stops, along with people like Ellis Ross, who wrote the forward to the victim cult and others, saying that it's really destructive. And this is Martin Luther King's vision as well. It's really destructive to, again, romanticize yourself or someone else based on unchangeable characteristics. That's really disastrous. And, and frankly, it, it doesn't even have to do with just skin color. It can be ethnicity. The longest chapter in the victim cult is about Rwanda, where the Hutus thought they were victims, and the Hutus were 85% of the population. They thought they were victims of the 10% Tutsis, and for 40 years, they propagandized against the Tutsis, and that led to a disastrous end, the genocide in 1994. So this can happen in any society, uh, well, especially non-liberal democracies. It can become really dangerous, and that's, again, where, where victim cults can wreck civilizations. But I, I think, you know, drawing back from the extremes, which is Nazi Germany, which is Rwanda, even the liberal democratic societies, drawing back from the extremes and saying to people, are you really sure that we don't have a shared humanity, that we're not like Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, both composed of good and evil? And can we not find common ground? That's, that's I think, where we need to be. Let's get into a bit of the practical specifics, because we have authors on, on this podcast a, a couple of times a month, and there's, there's a lot of authors who have done phenomenal work, as you have, kind of looking at some of the, the major things that are wrong with our society, the way they've metastasized over the past half century or so. What are some practical ways that we can combat the development of victim cults, or, or in, in many cases, I think the extension of victim cults? Well, I think it starts with the facts, so a bit of an empirical dive, and that's a bit of a policy wonk thing, being that I'm a policy analyst. But start with the facts and then also tell, tell other stories. So a good example of the first is years ago, I wrote a study for the Fraser Institute, and some of the numbers are in the victim cult, where I compared spending on Aboriginal Canadians to other Canadians. And without getting into you know, granular detail, spending on Aboriginal Canadians which is what we called them at you know at the time, that was that was the common phrase you know eight years ago now and now it's indigenous. But spending on indigenous Canadians has gone dramatically up and much higher than relative to the rest of the population. And this was money spent in addition to what indigenous Canadians would receive as as normal Canadian citizens. And I wrote that study to try and put some reality out there. Like it's not like many Canadians or governments haven't been well attended well intended over the decades, and they spent a fortune trying to correct problems. And I was trying to draw attention to, yes, but are you spending money the right way? Are reserves set up the right way to actually take this money and spend it the right way? Because if the reserve itself is corrupt, 
or doesn't have the structures of private property to create wealth, you can keep spending money and you're still going to find out that people don't have, you know, you know, drinkable water, you know, 30 years from now, as was the case 30 years before. So I think you have to be practical, look into the facts. And this is, again, kind of a Thomas Sowell approach for those not familiar with him, a famous American economist who happens to be black, but hates the notion of everyone's a victim. He'd, he'd rather trace clear cause and effect links. So that's point number one. And, and how do you move forward from some of this? Well, I think, again, you tell stories. You know, Ellis Ross, again, who, who wrote the forward for the victim cult, does this a little bit in the introduction or the forward, rather, where he talks about his parents and he talks about his own experience where he became, he did become bitter for a bit as a young man and then figured out this was not going to help anybody. And he turned his life around um, and, and decided to focus on, on how to make his First Nation prosperous and succeeded in doing so. So I think giving people perhaps a taste of what a positive future looks like. Then I think part of part of all this is just reading deeply into history. There really is nothing new in history. And if you look into history, you'll see that whenever, whenever various societies uh, and leaders concentrate on this notion of pure culture, they trip up pretty quickly because pure culture doesn't give you an engineering degree. If your people, and I would put your people in quotes, I think people are individuals, they don't belong to anyone, but let's go with it for now. If your people don't get an, an engineering degree or don't find, don't get a trade, if they don't have a practical skill, it's going to be really tough to make an income in life. If, if you're on a reserve without private property, it's going to be tough to build wealth over your lifetime, so on and so forth. So I think there's some practical things that can be done that are boring, but they're necessary. Education, pushing back where there is discrimination, though I would argue that's less prominent today than it's ever been in the history of the world in Western societies, where we've eliminated institutional discrimination, though you can still find personal bigots. So I, again, I think a lot of this is about putting the facts out there and telling the, the stories, including positive stories, of how, you, of how you're going to succeed. And I don't mean in a Tony Robbins, one, two, three, glib, you know, one, two, three steps to success. I mean, seriously thinking about which society succeed and why, instead of blaming everything on some conqueror 50 years ago or 500 years ago, because often that's, that's the weakest cause and effect link or a faulty cause and effect link out there. Final question then, where, where can people find your book? So thevictimcult.com, uh, you can buy it in Canada, you can buy it in the United States. There's two editions out there now. You can find it at your local bookstore, but victimcult.com is probably the easiest thing to uh, remember and to go to. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jonathan. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Mark Milkey on his book, The Victim Cult, How the Culture of Blame Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilization. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you want to hear conversations with other cutting-edge authors on new books coming out, we talk to several authors every single month here on The Van Maren Show, taking a look at the most current issues, trying to explain what's going on behind the headlines and reporting from the front lines of the culture wars. You can find us wherever you get your podcast content. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.